Hello, and welcome to Deep Dive, brought to you by NATO's Defense Education Enhancement Program. I'm your host, Dr. Sajan Gohel. Each episode, we speak to experts and practitioners in international security and defense, counterterrorism, and geopolitical current events to gain insight into the most pressing matters of global affairs. In this episode, we speak to Tom Wukti, who has served as the Executive Secretary for the International Institute for Justice and the Rule of Law. Prior to that, Tom was the head on anti-counterterrorism issues at the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, where he helped to strengthen the role of the organization as an effective framework for addressing the terrorist threat and in close coordination with the United Nations and the Global Counterterrorism Forum. As a seasoned diplomat, Tom also had been with the U.S. Department of Defense as well as the U.S. Department of State. He was Special Coordinator for United Nations Security Council Resolution 1540 and received the U.S. Department of State's highest award for excellence in international security affairs for his efforts to work collaboratively with international partners. Tom Wukti, many thanks for joining us on NATO Deep Dive. Thank you, Sajjan. It's great to join this podcast. I have a long association with NATO going back to my days in the early 2000s working with conventional arms control and continuing on most recently in my role as the executive secretary for the International Institute for Justice and the Rule of Law. It's my pleasure to be here and I look forward to having a discussion with you. We're very pleased to have you with us. Let's start by talking about multilateralism and global security in the post-pandemic era. What's the status of it now that we are in this new normal as we learn to live with COVID-19 and the challenges that exist with that? How has multilateralism been impacted and where do we see it going? That's a great question and one which I'm deeply interested in both in my professional and personal capacity. I often have said over the years as a person steeped in multilateralism, and I don't say that with any hubris, but I've been in both NATO meetings over the years, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, many other regional organizations when I was working on United Nations Security Council Resolution 1540, which focused on non-proliferation of weapons of mass destruction. And now at the IIJ, where we have a vast variety of partners. And multilateralism is really a key part of moving the international agenda forward. I I would take note that I uh, recently worked on a book with one of our advisory board members that was called COVID-19 Pandemic, The Threat and the response with a co-author, Sophia Drake. And the article that we focused in on was called Multilateralism and Global Security Post-COVID-19. And it looked at the importance of multilateralism, both coming into the pandemic, because I think we know the international global situation during a a short period of time from 2016 to 2020, had some struggles with the importance of multilateralism and how it should be approached. And then the pandemic, of course, I uh, don't speak with any authority. I'm a counterterrorism expert and a multilateralist expert, but the pandemic, of course, raised the interest and the necessity for strong multilateral cooperation. The, the post-pandemic thing, when I sat down and was approached to write this article, it was the very early days of the pandemic. And like many articles, they take some time to get published and it, it only came out a couple months ago. And I started to think last summer, maybe this article was outdated. And, and in reality, it's ended up being prescient. And I'm not saying that about what we wrote, but I think there's many articles about the importance of multilateralism post-COVID. And that problems as complex as the pandemic need good multilateral cooperation 
the state of multilateral cooperation is is and will probably continue to be very difficult on different levels. There's many multilateral partnerships that we have. My personal uh, involvement has been at what we would, I would call the traditional multilateral organizations, the United Nations, NATO, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. But you know, there's other multilateral organizations out there that are working similarly to have a consensus-based approach to things. Shanghai Cooperation Organization, the, the BRICS uh, alignment. What I think is the importance of multilateralism going forward is how does all of this coalesce around addressing some common security themes, which were not probably what we were thinking about 20 years ago. The multilateral community came together very strongly and very organized after 9-11. And a lot of people now, it's been 20 years for 9-11. And it, if you are somebody that was born 20 years ago, it is something in history to you. For somebody that watched the unfortunate uh, attacks that happened with 9-11, it's still very fresh in your mind. But it's difficult. it has become difficult for multilateral co cooperation in some of the traditional organizations because we have not got good cooperation and collaboration with some key partners that we would want to have to move agenda items for, forward. I found it over the last several years somewhat frustrating working in multilateral environments that seemingly areas which 20 years ago had been of common interest, whether it was reduction of small arms light weapons, something like the Open Skies Treaty, were easily to coordinate and cooperate among all the partners that were in there. And now there's been a challenge to getting everybody to want to join in on the discussion. And it's hard to move multilateral issues forward if there's not just some general consensus. And the last thing I would say, which maybe can come up later in the podcast, is the, the, the article that I, I put together actually picked NATO, the UN, and the Organization for Cooperation in Europe is examples of where multilateralism needed to be strengthened if we want to address what are I call non-traditional security issues, climate change, poverty eradication, um, free and fair elections in democracy, because these ultimately are drivers to some of the security concerns which we are wrestling with now at least in the world that I'm working in, particularly in counterterrorism. And so I give the state of multilateralism uh, uh, a tough balance right now to try to bridge some serious international disagreements. And I hope that we can come back together and make multilateralism as the preferred method to solve very complex problems. Because if we can't agree on that level, it'll be very hard to then do some of the bilateral things that we need to do among nations. Well, you've raised a lot of important points. Let's uh, unpack some of that. So if we look at multilateralism, especially in the buildup to the crisis in Ukraine, there was this concern about that had multilateralism uh, failed in the sense that Putin was not stopped from carrying out his invasion of uh, Ukraine. And perhaps what's interesting is that one of the conflicts that's tested the strength of multilateralism, and in many ways perhaps now renewed the status of NATO and the European Union, has been the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So can multilateralism bring an end to uh, Putin's conflict uh, in Ukraine, or is this something that is now beyond the, the goals and the purposes of what multilateralism can do? Uh, that's a tough question. Uh, clearly, I would say at the outset that the organization where I work is more in the traditional line of an international organization where we are apolitical and we try to be neutral on all of these issues. So we have not spoken out 
uh, about the uh, the global context context of the Ukraine uh, and Russia aggression between the two. But what we have emboldened and sort of tried to stress is the importance of collaboration and cooperation to solve some of these problems. So if I were to look at the ultimate solution to something like the conflict in Ukraine right now, I think it zeroes back into that in the end of the day, you have to have diplomatic multilateral agreement to end the conflict because it's the only solution that will allow us to get back to what one would see as a traditional international order where we have state-to-state relations and treaties are uh, recognized and the obligations are followed through. And I, and I, I see from my perspective in working in the counterterrorism field, this causes concern to me in the longer term in that we spend a lot of time reaching agreement on how to address very thorny issues such as counterterrorism, and it requires a multilateral framework where everybody agrees on the need to work together to cooperate. And a lack of cooperation makes it very, very difficult to actually implement the actions that you've decided to do to reduce the threat from such things as terrorists. So as we speak about the Ukraine crisis, as we talk about the issue of terrorism, we have seen Russia encourage the use of Syrian recruits in Ukraine. And then you also have the the very murky Wagner Group, uh, which is a mercenary outfit that's tied to the Kremlin, which has recruits on the ground in Ukraine. This raises uh, a problem and a definition issue over what constitutes as a foreign fighter. Has the Ukraine crisis complicated the issue about addressing the definition of foreign fighters or what you could describe as foreign terrorist fighters potentially as well? I'm very concerned about that uh, as somebody that worked through the foreign terrorist fighter issue in the early 2010s up until recently. And I would like to say also, it it is, again, uh, I think one of the things that multilateralism is important about, you have to look at it from all sides. And the call for foreign terrorist fighters or fighters to go into the, the conflict region right now in Ukraine is actually coming from both sides of the uh the issue. There's been calls for Western foreign fighters to also go into Ukraine. Um, I don't make a judgment about how we handle that, but what I I do cause great concern about is the definition of foreign terrorist fighters was really carefully crafted in two UN resolutions. I'm often fond of not trying to say that I expect the international world out there to be able to rattle off the numbers of UN resolutions. But there are two that anyone that works in the issues of security, counterterrorism, foreign terrorist fighters will, would immediately say, and it always rolls off the tongue, UNSCR 2178, which was adopted to address the outflow of foreign terrorist fighters into Iraq and Syria. And then Resolution 2396, which was largely to address the return of foreign terrorist fighters back to the countries of origin. That's a very general description of two very big resolutions that had many other elements in them. So I don't want to imply that that was the only thing that they were about. But clearly, they took a very careful and agreed way in the Security Council. And so to adopt a resolution in the Security Council, there is a great example of effective multilateralism. You have to have agreement among the Security Council members, or at least not a veto, to allow a resolution to be passed. It propelled the international community to come to agreement on what it should do to stop the flow over such things as making sure that through risk-based analysis, as somebody that looked like they were traveling from a country of origin to Iraq or Syria, 
why why are you applying for a flight that takes you from point A, B, and C and ends up in Syria? What's your purpose? Um, administrative measures are to take the passport back and not allow them to travel. And then issues like foreign terrorist fighters returning from the area of conflict in 2396, very carefully crafted to address <clears throat> those that were fighting in the ISIL Daesh context in those countries. Now, what causes me concern? To reach consensus and agreement, the international community and diplomats and people that work on this, <clears throat> they have very good memories about what was happening. I'm concerned that when we have another discussion, maybe five, 10 years from now, about a new resolution on the issue of foreign terrorist fighters, people will point to what is the definition? Because now we have people coming in of a conflict zone that is not Iraq and Syria. Does that change the definition of foreign terrorist fighters? I don't know what the outcome of that, but we've opened up a discussion that I think will come back to be a point of maybe if people don't see that the next resolution fully suits their needs or their understanding of the issue, they'll point to this and say, well, that's a different way foreign terrorist fighters were were used previously in regarding Iraq and Syria and ISIL Daesh. The jury is out on that. It's It's going to be a long time before that comes back up because the fortunate point is we we have a relative calm in the issues of the outflow of foreign terrorist fighters to the traditional areas that we were concerned about after 9-11 and the the occupation for the caliphate with ISIL Daesh. And now the return of these uh, foreign terrorist fighters, there's a process going through to repatriate them into their countries in a way that makes sense for the laws and the prosecution of them, but that's probably something to discuss maybe a little bit later. Well, let's pick up on some of those themes because one thing I know that the IIJ has been looking at is this issue about prosecuting terrorism cases and preparing people for how to deal with that. Have we had successes in prosecuting foreign terrorist fighters, such as, say, those that were involved in the battlefield for ISIS? or Al-Qaeda in Iraq and Syria? And what are the challenges that still remain in getting successful prosecutions? Yeah, uh, there have been successes. Uh, I, I don't have any that I would like to be listing off off the top of my head, just for some sensitivities. But um, governments have used a multiple wave collection of evidence to prosecute people. I think it would be simple things, which of course terrorists have now somewhat become more alert about, but getting the cell phone of the individual or finding the cell phone of somebody, getting the data off of that, that becomes evidence in the prosecution. The social media posts, you know, there was a beginning when all the foreign terrorist fighters were going into Iraq and Syria, I mean, people were putting themselves out there, proud that they were a foreign terrorist fighter in there. They soon learned that was probably not the best idea because that became evidence. And then I mentioned briefly, we, we do have a work stream now in the IAJ looking at battlefield evidence, which is the collection of evidence literally from the battlefield that could be used in the prosecution of uh foreign terrorist fighters or people returning from the conflict zone. Now, there's a lot of effort being done on battlefield evidence as an example, because the prosecution, you ask, is it our prosecutors successful? In the end of the day, like all criminal affairs, and I am often fond of saying that the approach to prosecuting a terrorist is to treat it as a criminal activity. That ultimately is what it is. It's there's not a special category, so to speak, that it's not, it's just still a crime to do these type of things. And so that prosecution does require, and that's what we teach our, our colleagues in our peer-to-peer -peer learning method, that prosecution should be done proportionate 
It should be done with fair access to trial, that the evidence is collected properly. This takes time. And some of these cases will take several years to bring to trial to do that. And that also opens up the issues of detention. How long do you keep these people in detention? That also leads to incubators of further violence and radicalization because people are surrounded by other like-minded people. But in the end of the day, I think there's a, there is a good process and a track record to bring people to uh, successful prosecution. The, but the last point I would make on the collection of battlefield evidence, which is an issue which we're deeply interested in, is that when and when you're a, a military person on the battlefield and you pick up things in sort of an evidentiary way, you know that's not necessarily the first thing on a military person's mind is how does that evidence eventually end up in a civilian court? And so we're trying to make sure that's understood in sort of a approach to share the experience both with what the military people are doing and then the civilian prosecutors and how to get it there in the bright chain of custody. Now, I think that the, the broader issues are that many of the collection methods on battlefield evidence, it's the same evidence collection you would see in a civilian crime scene. So if, if there was a non-military bomb that went off in a community, you would still be collecting evidence from that bomb attack and turning it over to prosecutors. But these are some of the very thorny issues that are being uh, addressed. But I'm particularly impressed and uh, we really like this work stream of ours to help our partners uh, primarily our focus region is Africa and the Middle East, is to understand how to handle this between the military and the civilian prosecutors. And the last point I would make, Sajan, is that not all countries have normal day-to-day -day contact between military uh, people and officers and enlisted and, and, and lawyers in the civilian side. I mean, it's like often two different worlds, they operate in different environments and putting them together in some of our trainings is one of the main efforts that we need to do is to make sure they understand how each of them approach this issue. Well, tied into this, we have a enduring headache, which is the foreign terrorist fighters who are currently in these camps in Syria, and then you also have their wives and their children who have now grown up to become young adults. And one thing you mentioned is that in some ways, these places can also serve as incubators for extremism. How do we deal with the families of ISIS fighters who they, who they themselves are getting radicalized? And countries are reluctant, understandably, to take them back. Where do we get a resolution on this? I think where do we get a resolution on this will be an effort that's going to take a tremendous amount of international cooperation. And it goes back to the beginning of our podcast where we talked about the importance of multilateralism. We have worked lightly on the issue of returning uh, families of returning foreign terrorist fighters and how to approach this in a way that doesn't exacerbate the issues of <clears throat> self-radicalization because you, you rightfully note staying in the camps surrounded by people in, in a conditions which may create an environment where they reflect on frustration about what they perceive as their own treatment to go back to their countries right now leads to feelings of, I guess, disempowerment toward their future in life. Now, there is a large body of work in the international community in counterterrorism on effective approaches to counterterrorism in the juvenile justice context. 
and to make sure that this all is done in a way that doesn't exacerbate this. Now, it's already been, if I count on my hand properly, it's been about five years now since the the conflict has lessened and now the camps are there and we're wrestling with how to get people back as returning families. Many of them were children in the conflict. They will soon be young adults. <clears throat> What's going to lead to radicalization is the reception and the process that they receive when they go back, whether it's to their own country or they go to a third country that's willing to take them, and that they are integrated into society in a way that is positive and uh, successful for them. I'm concerned that if this process goes on five, 10 years from now, and they continue to be in a situation where they're not well taken care of and not well integrated, they will have grievances, self-perceived or perceived maybe in reality, that will lead to what we call, in at least the context of the IIJ, is addressing homegrown terrorism. Will this become another generation of people that are self-radicalized um, sort of in an individual capacity because they're frustrated with their their situation in life. I don't know what the outcome of that was or will be, but it causes me as somebody that's been working in this for 15 years or so, a lot of concern because I don't know where to go with this. And I can only also add to this, look, I recall the migration issues in uh, the mid 2010s when people were coming up from the Southern region and many of them were settled into regions. For example, my good colleagues in Germany took almost a million people. How they are integrated successfully into society, that's the success story that we want to have. And we don't want to have a success story, which is that they are left unattended to and not given opportunity. I mean, look, all of us want to have a good opportunity in life. And these are really thorny issues I think we're going to have to see how they pan out literally over the next generation. What do you say to those that feel that some of these people are now so ideologically extreme and dangerous that it would not be possible to reintegrate them back into society and that they actually pose a, a threat and risk to the public? You know, I think that is... Uh, that's clearly a, an issue which needs to be handled with each individual case. In the, in the issues of rehabilitation and reintegration, and uh, we just finished our own process on this, developing what's called a multi-stakeholder referral mechanisms uh, curriculum and guide, looking at how do you work with your community to integrate people psychiatrists, school officials, um, <clears throat> employment agencies, uh, your own security apparatus, but it's many people to do that. Uh, you know, each individual person has to be attended to and whether they are such a risk to be admitted back into society, that is really a judgment that has to be done. What I often found to say is really best at the local level because they really have the most contact with the individual. And what I uh, try to avoid in our approach and also in thinking about this is sort of a one-size-fits-all approach. You often hear that in the international diplomacy world, but it's true. I mean, you, you can't sit back and say all people are ultimately going to be self-radicalized and we shouldn't let them come back into society. That's not a good outcome for anybody. And uh, but at the but the what I what I see is in the future of the counterterrorism community more emphasis on local local action and local solutions is where it's going to be done most effectively. It's very hard at a very high level to understand what's really going on when this person comes back to their family and what are they really thinking. That's really a psychiatrist or a social worker 
in some community where they're now living and working and trying to reintegrate themselves back into society. Tying this into what's going on in Afghanistan right now, in many ways, you see similarities to the challenges that emerged in Syria and Iraq post-Arab Spring, where there is insecurity, rule of law has collapsed. There is this concern about the rise of misogyny and extremism. Do you see a potential of Afghanistan becoming a theater for foreign terrorist fighters? And if so, what lessons can we learn from uh, the, the theater of Syria and Iraq? And, and then tying that into lessons for multilateralism. Uh, so firstly, is it a concern of yours? And, and secondly, what can we do to perhaps prepare better than we did uh, previously? Uh, that's a tough question, Sajan. I have to say, honestly, that the current work of the IIJ is not involved in Afghanistan uh, per se. But I would sort of take a step back from your question and say that um, the, the lack of democracy and effective rule of law exacerbates and leads to the growth of potential terrorist organizations developing. Um, I think that we should all be concerned about the fact that we invested an enormous amount of time and energy in a region such as Afghanistan or Iraq for that, where many terrorist organizations found one could say safe haven or inability to work in ungoverned spaces to organize themselves to then lead terrorist attacks outside the region of where they're being at. I mean, that is a long part of the battle we've had in the last 20 years with counterterrorism, ungoverned spaces, spaces that have poor rule of law, poor oversight of the military situation lead to the ability for terrorist organizations to organize themselves and operate sometimes with some impunity uh, in the West. What has COVID shown us right now? That the inability to travel very easily and the inability to be in contact and organize in a face-to-face -face manner, it's been a period of relative quiet. What do I worry about as I think about this? Counterterrorism issues often are kind of like one of these sine waves if you were a math student, and it has peaks and valleys. We're somewhat in a valley right now in that, that overt terrorist attacks that draw international attention, such as the Charlie Hebdo attack um, almost 10 years ago now, which is hard to believe, you know, how quickly these things happen. The, there has not been such an attack, and I hope there is not another attack like that. But those are the those are the sort of the 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 match that lights the fire for international cooperation to once it became become very frenetic and very active in addressing issues in a, in reaction. What's what do I strongly believe from a multi to go back to the beginning of the podcast? Multilateral perspective. What do we do with a situation like Afghanistan right now, which and we didn't envision probably two years ago that it would be back to a space where we didn't have a lot of understanding and control and work to how to shape the process to create a more democratic and accessible society. That out of that could come the rise of new terrorist organizations or new threats, because eventually, as we come out of this pandemic, a lot of the issues which we haven't had to address the last couple of years will come back. And that's the, the sad reality is potentially another terrorist attack that you're just not expecting. And then everybody will look um, in, in the government, the state governments. I always am that. So why do you need to be prepared? Because a, a senior government official will always be asked three questions. What did you know? When did you know it? And what is your reaction 
to this problem? And if you can't answer one, those three questions quickly and easily, then you are on unstable ground in the perception of your uh, uh, constituency in your own country that you didn't think this through and you weren't prepared. But also, as somebody that's done this and also been in the military myself, you can never con you can never prepare for every contingency. But the track record is is that something will happen again in the international community that will make us say we need to pay attention to counterterrorism. Maybe I can talk a little later in this podcast where I think I see this going in the counterterrorism community, given that the pandemic and the COVID has made us rethink maybe what some of our international priorities should be in the future. But we can get to that maybe a little bit later in the questions. Most definitely. I do want to touch upon that. You said a lot of important things uh, just now. One thing that occurred to me was the importance you place on democracy and that that is a very powerful tool accompanied with creation of civil society movements, rule of law, that can actually counter the rise of terrorism. Is that, is that something that really we don't necessarily pay much attention to, that democracy is in many ways, it's not the cure, but it plays a very important role in stemming extremism and ungoverned spaces from emerging that you were also uh, talking about. I mean, absolutely. No disagreement with that. Where I get uh, maybe frustration is not the right word, but where I have wrestled with this is that the often siloed approach to some of these issues is, I mean, look, counterterrorism officials are not democracy builders other than to espouse in our work the importance of fair trials, access, and a government that includes everybody in the decision-making process. I mean, that is very basic things that we discuss in all of our work, but we're, we don't have the resources the mandate or the time to focus on democracy building in a country or to say, maybe you should think about doing this a little bit, but the effects of it are seen. And where I do have a direct impact is in the counterterrorism world, we work tremendously with civil society on many levels and countries that have a robust democratic society also have a robust well-organized and accessible civil society network. And when we talk about lessening the path to radicalization, the people that are most in touch with what's going on at the local level are almost always non-governmental actors in civil society, as I often like to say, doing the Lord's work in trying to change the environment for things as simple as something you wouldn't think is counterterrorism related, but access to a sustainable water supply and that the village elders take that as a priority, that makes those people less inclined to be dissatisfied and say, well, maybe I should go on the path of radicalization to become joining one of my terrorist organizations. These are really important issues. I I strongly believe that many of the resources that we put into some of our training and capacity building, uh, it's, a it's often a different pot of resource money, but it should be really empowering and helping to support uh, the resources needed for civil society organizations that are down at the local level. Countries that don't have a strong democratic tradition often have, a, 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 it would be an interesting study to do, I don't have any, any facts and figures on it, but anecdotally what we see is countries that don't have a very robust democratic setup have a very small civil society footprint. And then when you want to engage in those countries for issues like de-radicalization and the fight against terrorism, there's not so many people to work with at the civil society level, 
and you're often left to work with the government structures who then you're led to necessarily structures that are most trusted by the local communities because they may not have really gained the understanding of the importance of civil society to work through these local issues. So it's a very thorny question, but uh, I'm really a big fan of including civil society in every step of this way. And I hope that the next five to 10 years in this issue of multilateralism and counterterrorism further strengthens the whole civil society work that's being done out there by some just incredible uh, in individuals and entities. And you raised so many important points that um, I couldn't agree with you more on, on everything you said about the essential need for civil society movements and how it is actually so important to strengthening counterterrorism. And it's just a reminder in some ways as to what we're seeing in Afghanistan and how the Taliban are eroding those very civil society movements, especially those that protect women's rights, which is a, a warning sign of what potentially may occur down the road. If we look at another region, which is North Africa, there are ungoverned spaces there. There is the issue about illegal immigration and human trafficking. How much of a role does that play in the insecurity in Southern Europe? And has that also directly challenged multilateralism? I, I sit uh, in a region which has a tremendous migration flow uh, from the South up to the North. In the counterterrorism community, 10 years ago, we, again, going back to this issue of silos, we tended to treat uh, migration and human trafficking as separate issues and didn't want to see them conflated with terrorism. I still think, based on everything I've seen over the last 10 years, it's difficult to find a direct correlation between terrorist organizations, terrorists traveling, and issues with irregular migration and refugees. That said, uh, it is an issue which one of our main efforts that we've been doing at the IIJ is the role of parliamentarians in addressing this. And unfortunately, it has often been conflated for what I've seen as somewhat expediency that irregular migration or refugees could potentially be perceived as a terrorist threat. I think that the more we can separate that as an, as an issue allows us to focus in on the core issue, which is people that are living in extreme poverty, and you give the example of North Africa, they are searching to get out of that situation. So of course they're migrating. Only in the last couple of years has at least the work in the IIJ and, and there's, I didn't talk earlier in the podcast about, we're an inspired institution from the Global Counterterrorism Forum, which is 30 like-minded countries. They have started to have discussions because classical, what I would call classical counterterrorism work has now had to look at tangential issues. And I think it was a very excellent work recently done. They called it the Nexus Memorandum, but it looked at issues like terrorism financing, migration, sexual violence, that maybe aren't classically tied to what we would consider returning foreign terrorist fighters in the, in the conflict zones. But these are exacerbating issues to us being able to address a stable, secure environment that allows us to move forward. And what I'm concerned about, you ask about um, the ungoverned spaces, is if if the if the entire international community doesn't have the wherewithal to allow migration in a in a good way, in a safe way, these people that are they're then they're sitting in ungoverned spaces 
unable to either go back to their country because they don't have a job or to move forward as a potential refugee or a regular migration issue, they're subject to the forces of radicalization. It is an extremely complex issue. It's not covered by, I mean, the counterterrorism world is not involved in trying to adjudicate migration issues, but they are now all part of a bigger whole, which is what do you do when you rethink multilateralism after the challenges we've faced in the last two plus years of the pandemic? And I, I think without doubt, if the pandemic becomes endemic, which seems, seems to be the general consensus right now, people will start moving and traveling again. And I don't, I don't know what 2022 portends, but if the situation gets more stable, 2023 could be a lot of people migrating who are finally able to get out of probably being in these so-called lockdowns after two, three years. How will we handle that? And what will be some of the second and third order issues which will come out from that? I don't have a crystal ball, but I certainly think about it and I certainly worry about it. And I wanna say one last thing, which didn't come up in this. We talk about migration, you talk about camps, ungoverned spaces. Five years ago, we were doing what I call the traditional counterterrorism capacity building work. A lot of it was based off of these two resolutions I mentioned to you, 2178, 2396. But we just started a work stream because you mentioned gender on sexual violence as a as a as a construct of terrorism, terrorizing people through sexual violence uh, in the context of terrorist work. Five years ago, that wasn't on our radar, but we are flexible. We're trying to think about how the international community is shifting. And the other issue that we're we're looking at, it's called many things by many people, but we're looking at racially and ethnically motivated violent extremism. And this is often called right-wing extremism. You know, we just saw it with the unfortunate attacks in some of the places in the United States. That also wasn't on our radar five years ago, but that's also an extremely important issue because if, if, uh, if the things like racially and ethically motivated violent extremism are not well handled, the, the, the so-called left-wing extremism can point to that and say, you've spent many millions of dollars and many years addressing the path to violent extremism by terrorists. What are you going to do about racially and ethnically motivated violent extremism, which is a whole subset and a different subset, but they all feed on each other because it makes each side feel that they're being persecuted. And that also is a grievance that leads to terrorist attacks. So, I mean, these, we've got our work cut out for us. Absolutely. And I guess that leads to the final question. In many ways, you've covered a lot of the angles, but to give you the final word on where do you see the primary security challenges that could emerge, the, the challenges that worry you, that keep you up at night? Climate change, extreme poverty, lack of food resources, the continued growth of not seeing democracy as a model that is most effective to engender a free and open society that allows people to live and prosper and an overemphasis on traditional security concerns because there's X amount of resources and there's the same Y number of issues. But we've, we've said many, many times the importance of counterterrorism. But the question that I've posed in a recent meeting I went to is, is counterterrorism an issue which needs to be given uh, right sizing, given these other threats 
that I call non-traditional threats so that they are as equally resourced. My biggest one right now is climate change. If, if the money is not invested to change that dynamic, it's going to create more migration, more poverty, and more people that could be leading on the path to radicalization. How do we wrestle with that? That's a difficult question. And multilateralism is the key. But what I see, and I and I and I I really gave a lot of thought to this post-COVID multilateralism approach article is should we ask ourselves that we create that we treat these other issues like climate change, poverty eradication, et cetera, as equally pressing resource-based issues that should be on the agenda of multilateral organizations. So for, for years, something, and I, I'm a great fan of the Organization for Security Cooperation in Europe, but it is really focused in on hard security issues. Are we ready to take the leap in multilateral work that climate change and poverty eradication are also hard security issues and they should be equally resourced and equally on the agenda of these security organizations with pressing urgency to move these issues forward? That goes back to my interest in the role of parliamentarians. They, in the end of the day, have to decide what priorities are and multilateral organizations then need to take their guidance from their governments to see how they shift the agendas. But the agendas have been very set for very many, many years on some very traditional issues. Should we redefine what traditional security means? That's my final comment. Redefining what traditional security means. That's definitely food for thought. And I'm so glad that you brought in this dimension about climate change and its connections to international security and also counterterrorism, because that is something that we will have to address with greater pressing urgency uh, based on the fact that climate change is a reality and it is impacting on all of us globally. Well, once again, uh, thank you so much, uh, Tom Wukti, for joining us in NATO Deep Dive and hope to have you again uh, on the show in the future. It's been my pleasure, Sajan, and uh, I wish you all the best, and uh, I hope to see you in person soon as well. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Deep Dive. I'm your host, Dr. Sajan Gohel. Deep Dive is brought to you by NATO's Defense Education Enhancement Program. The production and research team are Marcus Andreopoulos and Victoria Jones. For additional content, including full transcripts of each episode, please visit deepportal.hq.nato.int forward slash deep dive. Please note that the views, information, or opinions expressed in the deep dive series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of NATO or DEEP.